Resilient Cyber Podcast brings you conversations from diverse cybersecurity professionals, ranging from executives, subject matter experts, and aspiring entrants. Today's diverse threat landscape requires systems that can withstand a variety of cyber incidents, remaining trustworthy and secure. As always, we want to give a special shout out to our season two sponsor, Accurix. That's A-C-C-U-R-I-C-S. Accurix is a infrastructure as code security company, which helps codify security for your cloud native infrastructure by codifying security throughout the development lifecycle. They also manage the popular open source IAC project, TerraScan. Visit them at Accurix.com for more. Thank you for joining the Resilient Cyber Podcast. My name is Chris Hughes, and today we're joined by Garrick Beeson. Garrick, thanks for being here, man. Man, I am excited about this. I've been following you for a while and happy to be on the show. Yeah, likewise. For folks that don't know you, do you mind giving us a bit about your background? You know, what role you're in, you know, how, kind of your, your background in cyber? Sure thing. Uh, I am a CISO. I have been in cybersecurity my entire career. I think I'm probably one of the, the first CISOs to be able to say that. I spent time in pretty much every industry. I worked for the government for a while, protecting the nation's nuclear secrets, I worked at a product company leading professional services. I worked for the big four, worked my way up to one level under partner, uh, spent some time at a Fortune 500 as a deputy CISO, went to a late stage startup after a pretty nasty ransomware attack and turned some things around there. So done a little bit of everything. And uh, I think that has helped uh, in my, my leadership journey. Yeah, absolutely. I can agree with that. You know, I had a similar background in the sense of holding a lot of different roles within like the IT and cyberspace and all of them kind of have contributed to the way I approach things and it really can make a big difference. You mentioned like, you know, have been following me for a while. Honestly, the feeling's mutual, man. And I know you hold a variety of roles, you know, from uh, your CISO role, being an advisor, podcast host, you know, uh, I don't want to use the term influencer, but you definitely have a great presence in the, uh, you know, in our social media space. How do you juggle it all? You know, what drives you to, to do so much too? You know, it's interesting. I get that question often. My DMs ask me all the time, dude, when do you sleep? You know, generally speaking, every month, week, and day is really pre-planned out with my priorities. And everything else is planned around it. I, I plan my priorities. I don't prioritize my plans. And those priorities include everything from family time, work objectives, personal passion projects, which is where, you know, LinkedIn and advisory boards and things fall into. Self-care. I, I work up every morning at five o'clock and I work out. And so on. I really think that if you plan the things that you prioritize most and everything else fits in around it, you will be able to you know, achieve balance. And what drives me is the realization that I have an opportunity at this point in my career to help a lot of people. And when I started really focusing on that, I realized I was actually a happier person. So I find joy in influencing, since you use that word, the success of others, particularly in the security community. And this field has given me so much that I want to help others have that same experience. Yeah, it's actually something you and I talked about. You know, I want to highlight a couple of things you said, but something you, know, I, you and I talked about is like, you know, 10 years ago, for example, you didn't have the opportunity to just go on, uh, say, LinkedIn, for example, and just connect with other security leaders and learn from them if you're trying to aspire within your career. And now it's like a totally different paradigm where you can go out and just, you know, kind of follow folks, see what they're talking about and learn so much. It's such an incredible outlet. And you know me, I'm all about uh, some social media as well when it comes to like learning and, and helping others, too. Another thing that you said that really resonated with me is like, you know, it sounds like you're a very routine, kind of regimented person. I can relate to that too. Like I get up every morning, same time as you, about 5, 5, 15, work out, and like it kind of sets the tone for my day. And I think that makes a big difference if, it, you know, people underestimate the power of habit, and to be honest with you, I think. 
Absolutely. I completely agree with you. And you can tell if I broke some of my routines as well, because everything else is just a little off center. So that's actually something I need to work on. I think that's an area of resilience <laughs> that I need uh, is to be able to kind of handle when when things kind of go off schedule. But for the most part, I've created enough buffer space for, for the schedule to stay consistent. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. You know, being a creature of habit, when those habits get thrown off, it can, it can be disruptive for sure. So another thing I want to ask you about, you recently spoke about emotional intelligence. You know, do you feel that's something that's overlooked in tech and cyber or doesn't get enough attention and discussion? Oh, absolutely. Uh, your ability to self-regulate and tailor your leadership styles to the emotional profiles of the people you work with directly impacts your ability to be a leader. I'm generally a, a laid back and upbeat guy, and I tell people nothing can steal my joy. I think that gets misconstrued, and people think I never get upset, mad, sad, scared, you know, surprised. You know, that would actually be furthest from the truth. I have four kids, and anybody with kids knows we cycle through those emotions daily, right? The, the reason why people have that perception that I don't have those emotions is because they see the reaction to the emotion, not the emotion itself. I get all those emotions, but I'm constantly working on managing my response to my emotions. And uh, I think that's helped when it comes to leading people. Yeah, that's 100%, 100% right. I actually have four kids too. It's, it's funny the parallels you and I have, but it's so hard to sometimes control those emotions because you know kids uh, behave very differently than adults and they can elicit you know, emotions from you that maybe adults don't You know, in, in some cases. So it definitely, <laughs> definitely can relate there. Indeed. So you also speak a lot about leadership in cybersecurity, and I think this dovetails nicely into your you know, kind of mention of emotional intelligence and things like that. You know, what are some of the characteristics you think are most important when it comes to the modern cybersecurity leader? You know, there are a lot of characteristics, but if, if anybody follows me or has heard me, I really tend to focus on the softer side of, of leadership. We have amazing technical experts in our field that can do things that, quite frankly, I can't do and maybe never will be able to do. But what I think makes great leaders is the ability to reach and influence people. And to go even larger than that, the ability to cultivate a growth-oriented collaborative culture in both your organization, at the executive level, and also within their teams. And to me, this all comes back to soft skills and business acumen. I'll use one example that I never really hear talked about, but I focused on a lot. 20 years ago, the concept of psychological safety in the workplace was introduced. Generally, people are more willing to innovate and try out-of-the-box things if failure is perceived as a manifestation of learning and not frowned upon. You know, if you think you have a strong team, but you aren't experiencing any failures within your team, it's really likely that they're driven by the avoidance of failure, which in my opinion, undermines growth and innovation. So at the end of the day, culture is what you celebrate and what you tolerate. And as a famous saying from Peter Drucker goes, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Leaders today need to be able to build a culture and demonstrate that through their daily actions. Yeah, I, I really, uh, really appreciate some of the things you just said there in terms of failure. Like even for me personally, you know, I think one thing I've tried to do in, on, on LinkedIn, for example, is like share not only like successes when it comes to certifications and jobs and things, but also share the failures. And I think that resonates with people because, you know, it, a, lot, a lot of times, like you said, people are afraid to share those things or, you know, afraid to fail. And I, I think that like if you're not failing to an extent, you're, you're not really pushing the boundaries of what you're capable of, whether as an individual, as a team or an organization. I agree with you on, on all fronts. And to your point around talking about your failures, I 
personally believe that a lot of people, well, first, I think just from my experiences and what I've observed, people think talking about your failures is a sign of weakness. I believe it's actually a sign of strength because it shows that there's a level of confidence. And most likely, once you're talking about that failure, you've learned from that failure. So there's growth on the other end of failure a lot of the time. There's actually a, a, I wrote a post on LinkedIn and it got the interest of a security company and they created a whole blog website and it's called I Failed My Security Plus. And it's Jarek Beeson, right? So literally my story of how I failed the Security Plus. And people might like wonder, why would you do something like that? And the reality is people need to know how I failed, why I failed and what I learned from it, because I think that'll help the next person either accept their failure or not fail. Oftentimes, people have to touch the stove to find out that it's hot. I'd rather tell you about my experience touching the stove so that you don't have to touch the stove because it's going to be hot either way. Yeah, I love that. And uh, I, I love that perspective too. And I think it's so helpful when you talk about helping people, for example, like, you know, when you're starting out in the career field, it's easy to like jump on these outlets and see people and think they're so incredible. And like, you know, they do everything right. And everything goes their way. Uh, when in reality, that's that's usually not the case. It's just not often shared publicly. And I think it can be really inspiring and, and, you know, kind of reassure folks that it's all part of the journey, you know, in the process of kind of growing within your career. And, and one thing else I wanted to ask you about, like you talked about, you know, the the emotional tele- intelligence, the business acumen, the soft skills when it comes to cybersecurity. But, you know, cybersecurity is a technical field. And I feel it's like, you know, there's a dichotomy of balancing like your technical you know, expertise and keeping up with relevant you know, technology innovations and such, but also building those soft skills. You know, as a security leader, how do you kind of juggle the two, uh, knowing that you'll never necessarily be the, the technical expert, but you do need to know enough, you know, to be competent and, and lead your team in a correct way? Yeah, this is a this is a tough one because there are security leaders that have had, you know, zero technical experience. I think they have a a tougher hill to climb. Fortunately, I grew up in the technical ranks, so that's always going to be in me. But where I spend the most of my personal development time isn't on the technical side. I'm exposed to all the technical. I'm in the meetings with my teams. If you would have asked me eight years ago, I could log into a Cisco firewall and configure it. Today, I can tell my team exactly what I want out of that firewall, but I couldn't be hands-on keyboard. And I think that's really the limit that you need from a security uh, leadership perspective. We don't have to be able to turn the knobs and hammer the nails, but we have to know what it looks like when the nail is hammered right. And we have to be able to direct the team to, to turn the knobs. And if you're able to do that from a technical perspective, that's that's good enough. I also think that most security leaders or just leaders in anything in general have specialized in something so, you know, you may hear a CISSP say, you know, it's a mile wide and inch deep. I think as a security leader, you know, you're a, a jack of some trades, maybe not all, but you understand all the other ones. Enough to make sure that you can lead your team, you can set a strategy, and sometimes you got to be able to call bullshit, uh, to be completely honest with you. And if you don't understand technology enough, you you won't be able to to do that. But once again, as a cyber leader, you're establishing strategy, you're establishing vision, the tactical aspects of it, that comes back to your team. So as long as you equip yourself with a team and you hire a team and develop a team that specializes in your weaknesses, you don't have to be technical everywhere. 
Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I think it's a great way to approach it and just understand like you're, you're looking at the bigger picture, you know, business organizational outcomes and, and kind of building the team to help facilitate that is what kind of can lead to that success. Sticking with a little bit of a technical topic, you know, I know something you're super passionate about is cloud security. And you recently made some comments about, you know, SaaS security posture management or SSPM as it's called. You know, what exactly is SSPM and, and why do folks need to know what it is and, and why do they need it in some cases? So SSPM is, like you said, SaaS security posture management. For those familiar with cloud security posture management, it's the same thing that you see in the IS space, but for SaaS. And at this point, I think most security teams understand the concept of the shared responsibility model when it comes to the cloud. But I find most of our our focus is still on AWS, Azure, and GCP, you know, the IS space. Admittedly, it's where we own most of the responsibility in the tech stack. And compared to PaaS and and SaaS, there's more work to do on the IS side of things. So many security organizations are catching up with IT. IT is moving faster than security in a lot of cases. And that's because the business is moving faster than IT in a lot of cases. So I understand and it makes sense why we have focused so heavily on IS. The problem with that is a lot of our data is sitting in a SaaS environment, sensitive data, and depending on the org, the most sensitive data. And so that's why I have started to focus more heavily on on SaaS security, specifically SSPM. Yeah, yeah. Another, another. Ironically enough, another parallel uh, or area of interest uh, for me. Uh, like a little shameless pu- plug. Uh, I'm actually part of the SaaS Security Governance and Best Practices Working Group at Cloud Security Alliance, and we're getting ready to publish a uh, a pretty robust, about sixty page white paper on this topic: SaaS Security, uh, you know, governance and best practices when it comes to the security of SaaS. And just a couple metrics that I was really shocked by when I first learned is like the the, the mid to large organizations have almost two hundred different SaaS apps, for example, and only twenty five of those are controlled by the IT team or security team, for example. And only about 30% of organizations have any SaaS security solution in place. Uh, so when you talk about you know, how critical SaaS is to business operations, especially in this remote work paradigm that we're in now, and the fact that no one's really paying attention to it, it, it really is alarming. Uh, 30% is way more than I would have thought from organizations having SaaS security in place. I wonder if it's just MFA because the technology itself is so new and most people don't haven't heard of it. I guarantee you someone listening to this podcast has heard SSPM for the first time because of this podcast. So so 30% seems like a really large number. I'm, more, I'm wondering where they get that data from. Yeah, I actually feel the same way. I'd be curious to see exactly what uh, that security is in that 30%. Just out of curiosity, like, you know, SaaS is not new, you know, but when we talk about cloud and cloud security, like you said, you know, it's always around IaaS, you know, AWS, Azure, and obviously there's a lot to be done there. You know, why do you feel like SaaS security gets uh, so overlooked? Uh, And I'm just curious your perspective. You know, my, my thought is, I think it's kind of that goes back to the shared responsibility model. We get lulled into that sense of security, thinking that they're doing everything. Uh, and they are, they are doing a lot, right? But not everything. And then when you consider how many SaaS providers you're using, uh, it's definitely a, 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 an issue to be considered. Yeah, uh, man. I think there are a few reasons. We could probably have an entire podcast just on this subject. But I would narrow it down to, I don't know, let's say two or three reasons. Let's see where I end up. First, I think there's just been a lack of industry focus on the subject. Like I said, I think that's going to change over time. But the reality is we're all busy people. (laughs) Like there is no security person that's twiddling their thumbs, right? So we've focused more heavily on protecting our assets on-premise and IaaS, which I can't argue with. As cyber leaders, we manage scarcity. 
This simply means that there aren't enough resources to address all the risks. That can be budget, tech, people, skill sets, you name it. In economics, the only way to address scarcity is to reduce the amount of problems that you have or to add resources. We typically opt for both, right? We try to add as many resources as possible, but the only way to reduce those problems is to prioritize. And that is the way we've addressed it. And SaaS security simply hasn't made the top of the list. And then I would say the second reason is many SaaS apps are typically run out of the business. So security vets the vendor, ensures that the vendor is doing all the right things, and then they do a third-party risk management you know, questionnaire, stuff like that. If they're more mature, they're trying to require MFA for access, maybe finding out if there's any APIs. But generally speaking, that's where it stops. They may even request certain configurations are in place. But security typically doesn't have visibility into that configuration, and it stops there, right? And then the last reason we kind of touched on this, the technology to wrangle this in didn't exist until recently. And I view the attack surface as any tech or app that stores our data. SaaS has to be on that list. I found Exonius uh, about a year ago, and they address that in the data center and in my IaaS environment. And now they're also doing it for SaaS. You know, in a single solution, I have a complete visibility into every aspect of my attack surface, including the configuration risks and vulnerabilities. That simply wasn't possible as recent as a couple of years ago. Now, I'm really I'm really bullish on this market solely because I think attackers are going to be bullish on it as well when they start to focus on it. Yeah, actually, uh, I agree so much with a lot of what you said. And and I think it's, you know, it is a problem and it's something that's been overlooked by, like you, I also think it's a tremendous opportunity. I think vendors, you know, such as Exonius and, and, and App Omni and others are starting to catch on to. And and like you, you know, you talk about, you know, the, the data-centric nature of how you how you look at the attack surface. It's the same kind of approach with uh, Zero Trust. When you look at data-centric and identity-centric, you know, approaches that we're taking, uh, if your data is there, you need to be concerned with it. And uh, so I think we're definitely seeing the industry move in that direction. You know, one thing you said that made me think about something is like, you know, how we vet these kind of uh, providers, right, for the business, if we even get the opportunity to do so in terms of security, you know, if we even get the opportunity to vet these. You know, one thing I've run into when trying to help organizations do this is it's a kind of always that balance between introducing enough friction and, and you know, kind of helping uh, put some rigor around how they consider and procure and start to use SaaS vendors, but also, you know, not just necessarily being a rubber stamp. And, and it can be it can be a challenging situation because they just want to go like, you know, they're used to just, you know, throw a credit card number in there or something and you can be using it really quick. Any recommendations on how you would or how you have approached, you know, kind of balancing that? Yeah. So the, the SaaS security posture management space, depending on the the vendor has started to help address this. And if you look at even the CASB space, they started the process of identifying SaaS apps that are in use, identifying cloud apps that are in use. But where they end up stopping is typically at the the endpoint level, right? There's some type of agent or maybe even the firewall level. There's something that says somebody is going to box.com, somebody is going to Slack, whatever it may be. And and it really stops there. I think that the next step is to interrogate expenses. Most people aren't paying for it out of their own money. They're using their company card. So if you were able to interrogate your expenses and see that someone has paid for 
whatever, then that gives you visibility into other SaaS apps. That gives you visibility into maybe something that someone is doing when they're not on network and maybe something that your tooling just didn't catch because it didn't hit one of your triggers. And it could just be one user. It could just be two users. But the the reality is, is what that user is uploading is more important than the amount of users that it is. And if we see, you know, in a company of 10,000, if you see two people they're hitting on Dropbox, depending on all the other risks that you're dealing with, that probably isn't going to get a heavy focus. But if they're uploading sensitive client data, it's just as big as, you know, the risk where, you know, hundreds of people are accessing something you, you don't want them to. So being able to correlate expense reports to your SaaS app inventory, I think is one major step. And then also, when you start to look at that information, you'll realize that most of these people aren't paying for the enterprise version, right? They're paying for... They're either using the free version, which you'll find out through some of your agents, or they are paying for the standard version because this is something that is coming out of an expense that maybe isn't budgeted for or whatever it may be. Well, those standard versions and non-enterprise versions typically don't have all the security bells and whistles, including the ability to use MFA, including the ability to encrypt, including the ability to send that data to your to your SIM. So really diving in and understanding how those SaaS apps are used is is going to be important. And SSPM is making that easier, which makes it a more palatable initiative to to embark upon. Yeah, I think you're highlighting, uh, you know, both the complexity and and the opportunity in this challenge, you know, in in terms of just getting a handle on what's even being used. It's, you know, the fundamental, you know, critical uh, security controls like asset inventory, whether it's hardware or software, in this case, SaaS. Uh, And there's a lot of ways to come at it. Like you said, CASB is one. Uh, but that's assuming you kind of have that, you know, inline insight visibility into all traffic, for example, which is not always the case, or you don't always have agents in place. Uh, so coming at it from the angle of the financial systems, and there's even browser, browser-based plugins that can be used by some of these solution providers like Axonius and things like that. And I think there's a, you know, kind of a highlight of how many angles you have to come at this just to try to get a comprehensive inventory to start tackling these problems. And then I love where you were going with, you know, not just using SSPM and getting configurations and compliance and things like that, you know, visibility of the data and users, but also starting to integrate with your seam, you know, your sock, et cetera. That way you have a visibility from an incident response and business continuity perspective as well. Yeah. I'll give one very basic use case. If you have an app that is being utilized that is not known to IT or security, most likely 2FA is not being used. And if it is being used, it's not through your own central 2FA. So then that means that there's a local account that those users are logging into. I 100% guarantee you when someone that has access to that app leaves the organization, no one is forcing the removal of that person's account from that SaaS app because no one knows about it in IT or security who would push those types of things. So now this sensitive data or even non-sensitive data, just data about your organization or your customers or your products or anything is sitting in a SaaS app with a person that has access to it when they no longer need to have access to it. That's a risk. That's an insider risk. I think we're going to start to see that risk exploited more and more if it's not already being exploited. Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, you know, I think that ties into like you know some of the concepts where you need to have things like federated identity, so you can actually revoke access across these myriad of applications. And then if security doesn't have visibility, like you said, some of the fundamental security controls or you know uh, security implementations and configurations like MFA are likely not being implemented for sure. All things are critical, and I think it ties to you know supply chain security. You know, you talk about you know malicious actors are starting to kind of target suppliers, knowing that it's like a, a you know a more efficient path to get to many victims. Well, that's going to apply to SaaS too. You know, how many people are using these SaaS apps? If you can compromise one of them, 
And that, that, you know, consumer or some of those consumers have poor configurations or poor user management, permission management. It's going to cascade all the way across the ecosystem. So this is all great stuff. We definitely could have had a conversation just on this. But with that said, I did want to take us to our final question. You know, what does the term cyber resilience mean to you? Uh, Cyber resilience for me is a bend but don't break Cyber resilience is accepting that you cannot prevent all the bad things from occurring, but you have to be able to sustain operation when the bad thing occurs. If I were to use an analogy, a diamond is the hardest substance known to earth, but a hammer can break a diamond. Anything can be broken. The question is, how prepared are you? for when that break occurs and what processes, what people, what technology do you have in place to ensure that it does not impact your ability to do business. Love it. That was an awesome answer, man. Uh, so with that said, that takes us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for coming on. And I, we definitely could have had a much longer chat on a lot of these topics, but I look forward to staying connected with you. Thanks, man. Appreciate you uh, letting me on and sharing the airwaves with you. Absolutely. Take care, everyone.